Well, we're going to turn for our reading this evening to the first book of the Chronicles and the last chapter, chapter 29. We're going to read some verses from verse 10. As you know, the context of this is that uh, the people now and David have brought all the materials, the gold, silver, the precious stones, all these things, uh, for the building of the temple. And uh, David um, stands up and he says uh, in verse 10, Therefore David blessed the Lord before all the assembly, and David said, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father, for ever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power and the glory, the victory and the majesty, for all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honour come from you, and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might, in your hand it is to make great and to give to all. Now therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. But who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to offer so willingly as this? For all things come from you, and of your own we are given you. For we are aliens and pilgrims before you, as were all our fathers. Our days on earth are as a shadow and without hope. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have prepared to build you a house from your holy name is from your hand and is all your own. I know also, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. As for me, in the uprightness of my heart, I have willingly offered all these things. And now with joy I have seen your people who are present here to offer willingly to you. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, our fathers, keep this forever in the intent of the thought of the heart of your people and fix their heart towards you. And give my son Solomon a loyal heart to keep your commandments and your testimonies and your statutes to do all these things and to build the temple for which I have made provision. Then David said to all the assembly, Now bless the Lord your God. So all the assembly blessed the Lord, the God of their fathers, and bowed their heads and prostrated themselves before the Lord and the king and the reason I read that will become clearer a bit later on I hope so we're going to continue now in our series in Judges and if you'd like to turn briefly to begin with to Judges chapter 3 and uh, I've just uh, brought some slides this evening I haven't written reams of notes but I'm going to hopefully talk uh, from the slides on the screen So, just to remind ourselves of this really most important verse, right at the end of the book of Judges, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And it reminds us that the society that we're considering here, uh, they were a a society in many ways, uh, without leadership, without authority, and perhaps the key words there, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 
in many ways it was a sort of free for all time um, if people thought it was right they did it reminds us of a situation perhaps that's happening in this land and perhaps in the world generally as there is there is no thought of God people think that they have the right in themselves as long as it doesn't hurt others apparently to do what they want to in their own eyes so in many ways this verse sets the scene for the society in which we're looking at now we're looking aren't we through the course of this book at these judges we have so far looked at Othniel Caleb's younger brother who defeated the king of Mesopotamia and we looked last time at Ehud who killed Eglon king of the Moabs and subdued the Moabs and it was done in a very gory awful way of which we're given such incredible detail and so thirdly now we come to look at Shemgar now you'll see beside his name and beside several others the word unknown and indeed for each of these there is virtually nothing known apart from these single references so I thought tonight we wouldn't be able to spend much time on Shamgar so I thought tonight we'd actually assemble and bring together all the unknowns uh, and I've decided to call it a study of the nobodies uh, not that they weren't important but it's those who indeed have their names appear only once in the scriptures now these are only the ones in Judges if you go to Google and type in people in the Bible whose name only occurs once you get a list of several hundred people uh, because there are hundreds of people in the Bible whose name occupy, appears only once so who were the nobodies? Well, we've got here Shamgar, killed 600 Philistines. We're going to look at that in a minute. Uh, men with strange names. Tola, 23 years, judged Israel. Jair, 22 years. Ibzan, Elon, and Abdon. So we have six uh, judges who only appear once in the land. So, and again we remind ourselves of where all this happened if you look towards the top of the map there you can see the name Shamgar but just underneath him is Elon and underneath him is Tola underneath him is Abdon uh, we see again Ibzan underneath Ehud and just to the uh, left there is Samson and then right at the bottom is Othniel so we've looked, looked at Othniel and we've looked at Ehud and so now we're going to look this, more, this evening firstly at Shamgar. So there we are, there's the land of uh, Israel, the promised land. Those are the areas allotted to the tribes that we see and we will see there some of the places and we can see that uh, not all of them uh, ruled or judged the whole of the land some of them judged in different parts of the land consecutively side by side so if we put these two maps together we can see effectively where the action is taking place and who are the people in the action but unfortunately I can't leave it there I have to move on to the next slide okay Shamgar uh, his name means 
the name of a stranger. If you look, uh, if you've got your Bibles open, uh, chapter 3, verse 31, after him, that's after Ehud, after him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also delivered Israel. So, what do we know? Well, here we are, there's the text. Uh, and the question is asked, was he an Israelite? Um, Shamgar is not necessarily a Jewish or Israelitish name. There is some speculation that came from another ancient tribe uh, somewhere in the area. So his name seems to be non-Jewish. I think one commentator mentions the tribe of Haran, or H-U-R-R-A-N. But anyway, that in many ways is irrelevant because he is called by God, appointed by God, to do this particular thing. Um, So, son of Anath. Well, here's an interesting one. Was he a worshipper of the Canaanite goddess Anath? Or was he merely a resident of a place called Ben-Anath in Judea. Uh, and this seems much more likely because Judea was close to the land of the Philistines and his main act now was to actually destroy 600 of the men of Philistine. So he had this ox goad. Was he a farmer? Uh, you would need this if he was ploughing with a yoke of oxen. We're told that it was about eight feet long and not a thin thing. It was around six inches in diameter at the handle. One end was a long spike to go the oxen, get them moving. And apparently at the other end was a sort of spade-like implement to actually clean the earth from the plough. So really, if you got a clout from this either end, It wasn't going to do you an enormous amount of good. It was a formidable weapon in that way. And the scriptures tell us, with this weapon, he killed 600 men. And as we're going to go through the judges, it's just interesting to note, and my good friend Dal Ralph Davis brings this to our attention, he says, look at the collection of God's weapons to deal with the enemies. First of all, we have Shamgar's ox goad. Then we heard about Ehud's dagger. We will come soon to Jael's hammer and tent peg. Gideon's horns and his torches. The woman later on, the woman's millstone. And eventually we'll come to Samson's jawbone of an axe. So he didn't need chariots with swords sticking out of their wheels and he didn't need um, vast engines of war. Uh, God used, placed these things in their hands in the same way that he placed two, five small stones in David's hand and put one in the sling and it accomplished this great and mighty defeat. So God's use of instruments, and we can sort of extend this a little bit, can't we? God's use of instruments is not necessarily the instruments that we would use. And it's most important, I think, just to consider, you know, from time to time, what, we, what we're thinking of doing and what we think is most appropriate. But perhaps thinking 
Well, in some senses, what would God use or what would God have us to do? Let's ask for God's leading on these particular things. So, we come to our next judge and we need to turn over a few chapters because looking just at this group of judges, we won't necessarily be going chronologically through the scriptures. But if we turn over to Judges chapter 10... Now we're picking up here this verse here. After Abimelech there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Puah, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, one of the twelve tribes. And he dwelt in Shemir in the mountains of Ephraim. He judged Israel twenty-three years and he died and was buried in Shemir. So this man arose after the terrible devastation. Um, but I'll just go back here. What do we know uh, specifically? Well, his lineage, where he came from. We're given his name of his father and his grandfather. And we're told that he was definitely uh, a Jewish and Israelite from the tribe of Issachar. His residence was a place called Shemir. Now, I looked on the map with the places, but I couldn't quite find it, so whether it's uh, gone into the realms of antiquity, I don't know. And in fact, as we shall see, he, he judged Israel for 23 years. Now, we say he judged Israel, but we don't know whether that was the whole of the land or specifically in the area where he was. Uh, 23 years, he judged the land and his death and burial place are also recorded for us. And that's all we know about this particular man, Shola. But what we do know, and what is important, that he was raised by God uh, following the devastation and the destruction caused by the evil Abimelech. Now, some of you, many of you may know that Abimelech was the man who went and slaughtered the 70 sons of Jerubbabel and uh, was made king by a group of his followers but it was a disastrous time. He was only king for three years and eventually he's defeated and so at that time God raises up this man uh, Tola. There we have it there. So after Abimelech there arose to save Israel Tola. But we don't know what he did. We don't know how he um, It's speculated. How did Tola judge Israel? Was there military action? We're not told. What we can surmise is perhaps that he was raised up as a judge possibly to bring a period of stability and peace to um, have a good administration the land was in much need of a good administration. It had been in turmoil during the years of Abimelech. Now God brings a degree of peace, organisation and smooth administration. And what this shows us is that God is gracious. He brings peace. I mean, we've been through politically this year a time of terrible upheaval, haven't we? And I think all of us are praying now for stable government. And I think this was probably uh, what was happening in Israel at that time. And what we find here, again, and this is a principle in Scripture, that God never, never allows evil 
to have the final word. God will defeat evil. We know that the father of evil, the father of lies, is a defeated foe. And one day that will come to pass fin finally. So God never allows evil to have the final word. After Abimelech, he raises up this man called Tola. And then we go on immediately in the scriptures, we find a man called Jair. And his name means enlightenment. And again, we have this brief description of this man. After him arose Jair, a Gileadite, and he judged Israel for 22 years. Now he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. They also had 30 towns, which are called Havoth of Jair, which means the circuit of Jair, to this day which are in the land of Gilead. And again, Jair died and was buried in a place called Camon. So what can we draw out from this man who's raised up to judge Israel for 22 years? Well, what we can say probably is that this was a man of wide influence through his 30 sons. In Old Testament times, of course, sons were recognised as being a great blessing uh, Sons, of course, perpetuate the family name and provide care and protection for parents in old age. And it seems that each of these sons was significant enough to have his own city, his own town, and probably they drew um, sort of advice and inspiration uh, from their father. See, these 30 sons may have been important in providing a stable administration and government through the 21 years. Let's turn over the page now. So, we've had uh, Tola, we've had Jair, and we've had uh, 45 years of what seems like stable government, peace, uh, doesn't say anything does it, about the worship of Almighty God during these 45 years of rule of these two men. And this is very important, I think, that uh, there was no king. Uh, it doesn't even tell us who the high priest was during these years until we get uh, into the next book, until we come across Samson, who appears right at the very end. So, after 45 years of Tola and Jair, this concluded what we might call the second period of the judges. Um, the first period ended, I think, with Joshua, and then we had Othniel and Ehad, and then Shamgar, and then we moved forward, and we've had Tola uh, and Jair. So that ends the second period of the rule of the judges. And the third period begins, now if you want to turn to, again to chapter 10, verse 6, you've got these words these words that are repeated so many times in the book of Judges. Then the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab. And so it goes on, the gods of the people of Ammon and the gods of the Philippines. If you remember from the map, these are all the tribes that border the land of Israel. So we again... Israel 
goes into renewed apostasy. And it covers this third period now, covers the period of the judges, Jephthah, Ibsen, Elon and Abdon. And we find we now need to turn over to uh, Judges chapter 12. Consider briefly these men. So if we look at Judges chapter 12, verses 8 to 12, and we find these uh, particular words. After him, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons, and he gave away 30 daughters in marriage and brought in 30 daughters from elsewhere for his sons. He judged Israel seven years. Then Ibzan died and was buried at Bethlehem. And after him, Elon, the Zebulonite, judged Israel. He judged Israel ten years. And Elon, the Zebulonite, died and was buried at Ajalon in the country of Zebulon. And after him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirathonite, judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 young donkeys. He judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirathonite, died and was buried in Pirathon, in the land of Ephraim, in the mountains of the Amalekites. So again, very quickly, in the space of four or five verses, we cover a period of some 25 years. Jephthah will be subject of a separate study, but we're just going to have a look at his three successors. Well, they're men, again, with sort of strange names to us anyway. We find them there in the passage that we read. And we find the key features about them. Uh, we know nothing about Elon, apart from the place where he lived and the place where he was buried. We know that Isban had 30 sons again, and Abdon had 40 sons and 30 grandsons. So it's interesting as well, just to, in passing, we've passed over Jephthah, but you know about Jephthah and his daughter, his only daughter. It's interesting, isn't it, to contrast there's vast numbers of sons and daughters uh, from these other judges contrast this with the one single child of Jephthah the judge who preceded them. God works in his own ways uh, to provide for his own work really. So having looked briefly at those we can perhaps begin to make some observations. As we go through the book, we can draw perhaps three groups or three formulas we find in the book. There are three time slots, if you like. There's the number of years that God, that the people, of, oh sorry, the people of Israel, sorry, the number of years the people of Israel serve foreign oppressors. And we find these in chapter 3, verse 8 and 14. Chapter 4, verse 3, chapter 6, verse 1, chapter 10, verse 8, and chapter 13, which we haven't got there yet, uh, verse 1. So these are the number of years that the people of Israel served foreign oppressions. And then secondly, we can draw out from these chapters the number of years that the land enjoyed rest. This was found again in chapters 3, 11 and 30, 
5.31 and chapter 8.28. We read that after the judge came into position, into office, then the land had rest. But interestingly, the number of years a leader judged Israel. That's his quite important. See, we find it there in that group of verses 10, 2, 12, 7, 9, 11, 14, some of which we've just read, chapter 15, 20, and 16, 31. And it's interesting that these periods all occur after Gideon. So up until Gideon, the land, after the events, the land had rest. But after Gideon, it seems that although there were judges ruling, there was no rest in the land. You see, the writer is making the point, I think, here, that Israel, in her continuing apostasy, forfeits the, the rest of God. Normal rule continues, but it seems that divine gifts are withdrawn. Now, peace and rest are so important, they're so precious, aren't they? You know what it's like? You live busy, busy lives. Everything seems to be happening at once. And then you get this lovely little period where you can put everything aside, you can rest, you can focus on the Lord, and you, it is a real blessing aside from the everyday. And I think this somehow describes it. And it's interesting, isn't it? I mentioned there the apostasy of the people of Israel. It's interesting when you look around in modern society, perhaps, particularly if you look at churches who um, put forth the name of the Saviour, but if you look at them, they're not at peace and they're not at rest. You look at the Church of England and the struggles it's had over gay marriage, over gay ministers, over women ministers, women bishops, the church is divided, isn't it? They cobble together some form of compromise, but deep down, the church is not at rest. It's not happy with itself. It's the same we've seen so recently. This is so relevant, isn't it? The Tory party itself is not at rest. There are agendas all over the place. They can't agree. And yet, again, they try and cobble together some peace. And we see this repeated over and over again in scriptures. And sadly, we find it also in evangelical churches. There are agendas, aren't there? People have agendas. And people want to pursue their own agenda. Having, again, unity and therefore rest in the church is such a wonderful thing uh, to be desired and an even more wonderful thing to be obtained and received. You see, as you look through these passages, we will note that uh, we see the constant references to the raising up of the men, and the scriptures are very detailed in this respect. They tell us when each man died and when each man was buried. We find that Joshua, chapter 2, verse 8, Othniel, 3.11, Ehud, 4.1, and so it goes on together with the others, Jephthah, Ibzan, Elon. They tell us exactly when they died and exactly where they were buried. So this is a, an interesting thing that we can just comment on the fact that these were mortal men raised up by God for a season 
for a specific purpose to be his instruments. And indeed, we see that they were useful to him. They performed his will, uh, they brought about his will. Whether it was to bring peace, whether it was to bring deliverance, whether it was to bring indeed some sort of chastisement upon the people. But we can contrast these mortal men with this wonderful uh, message from Hebrews. He says, also there were many priests. You can substitute judges for priests there in many ways. Also there were many priests because they were prevented from de by death from continuing. Mortal men have to die. But he, referring to Jesus Christ, but he continues forever because he has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, therefore he's also able to save to the uttermost for those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. It's a wonderful thought, isn't it? There'll never be a point uh, when someone will come up to us, perhaps in eternity, and say, well, I'm sorry, tomorrow your salvation's going to run out because God's merit doesn't last any longer. It'll never happen, will it? Now, with these mortal men, these judges, they had to be replaced, and that's what uh, the writers of Hebrews is saying. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented from death. But our leader, our judge, and our saviour lives forever. Mortal men raised up by God, but we have an eternal God in the heavens since he always lives to make intercessions for them. Well, that's a wonderful thought. But now I just want to share a few more thoughts. I'll separate the pages. Take a few for the few closing minutes of the big picture, if you like. We're focused on a number of men in a degree of small detail. Men who appear just briefly in the scriptures. But all this is there because of God's big view, God's big picture, God's view of things not only in the scriptures but in the events of the world around us. Question, why does the Bible give so little information about this men? And these are men who God raised up himself, aren't they, to rule and to deliver his people. They were his chosen men. In the same way that the prophets were raised up, given great boldness, given great strength, endurance, given the ability to endure persecution. They were also raised up by God for specific purposes. And it's clear in all cases that the Spirit of the Lord came upon these men to enable them and to empower them to do the things that he had called them to do. So why does the Bible give so little information about these men? Well, the answer probably is because the essence of the Bible, the centre of the Bible, the message of the Bible is about God and not men. You see, as we read the Bible, we are not to glorify men, but to glorify God who empowers men to do these things on his behalf. And to quote from Dale Ralph Davis, the Bible is theocentric. Man is not the centre. Now how far from the day-to-day -day situations that we find, not only in secular life, but in Christian life, in churches today, men are the centre, aren't they? 
There are these cults who adore the preacher, the, the man they follow, the man they look after. We see this everywhere in society. The pop culture, the celebrity culture, the Facebook people and the Twitter people. Millions of followers, some of them, making millions of pounds. But this is not scriptural and we should avoid this. We shouldn't be involved in these things. Our life should be God-centred as much as the Bible is theocentric. So man is not the centre, God is the centre. So then, we go back to the passage that we read together in David in Chronicles, if we can. Going back to the end of... This is a lovely, lovely passage. People say, if you want doctrine, go and read the New Testament, Romans, Hebrews, the Pauline letters. But believe me, in this short passage, there is so much, so much wonderful doctrine. Let's consider David's words in closing. David says, right in the middle there, towards the end, after these wonderful sentences extolling God's omnipotence, his majesty, his eternity, his sovereignty, he says these words, but who am I? And David, as we know, was one of the greatest kings, if not the greatest king of Israel. A man who actually must have become tremendously wealthy because of his position, because of his victories, a man who was adored and respected by his people, a man whose name has come down through history, uh, associated in a family line with the Lord Jesus Christ, a man who could have had such pride in all his accomplishments. But here he stands before Almighty God and he says, But who am I? Oh, my battery is running. I thought it was plugged in. Is it switched on? Should be right now. But who am I? You see, David is acknowledging, firstly, these words of humility. Are they? Yes, they are. Great humility, as we've just considered. Here was David the first king of all Israel, Judah and Israel, brought together into one nation. He expanded the borders. He brought peace. He did treaties with the nations around. He brought the nation prosperity. They became, in many ways, the dominant nation in the region for many years. So yes, these are obviously words of humility. Words acknowledging his status before God. Yes, they are, aren't they? Who am I? He could say, well, I'm the king. I'm the, but no, he says, but who am I? Works acknowledging God's eternal sovereign nature. Yes, they are. His high, and this is important, you see, his high and lofty appreciation of God produced in him a lowly spirit within himself. But who am I, he says, and the people who are with me. And it's important that as we look at this, as these people, these men that we have considered, they appear only once in Scripture. It's important that we perhaps have a 
have the same spirit of humility as David had. It's so easy, isn't it, to perhaps not even easily, but we have that tendency, that that sort of drive that we want to be not necessarily the preeminent one, but we want to be recognised as someone. This is why some people write, you know, histories of themselves, so that they leave it to the family, so that they'll never be forgotten, sort of thing. Well, great, great, great granddad, he did this and this sort of thing. It's, it's interesting to me why people search their ancestry. Uh, I'm keen on history as well, but uh, it's in many ways for us to understand, as uh, Shakespeare wrote, isn't he? All the world's a stage and everybody merely plays and they have their entrances and their exits and we, we've all entered and one day we're all going to exit. And the vast majority of the seven billion people on this earth won't know that we ever existed. But uh, it's important that we too have that same spirit of humility. Well, just to close, these men, of course, were not nobodies, were they? They were not nobodies because their names are deemed worthy of mention in God's word, along with many, many others who, through their godly works and their obedience, have brought glory to God's name. And finally, again, we have the proof of that in Hebrews 11.32, where in the roll call of the great men of faith, mentioned Gideon, Barak, Jephthah, who will continue, consider to continue, and Samson. But then, what we have to think of is this, and this is a challenge, isn't it? Our names will never appear in the Bible, because that record, of course, is closed. But our names will appear in another one of God's books, won't it? The Lamb's Book of Life. The challenge, then, is whether our deeds and our works will come through the fire or they come through as gold, silver, precious stones and whether they will add to God's glory in the same way that these insignificant seemingly men are recorded in scriptures their work has gone down through the generations two, three, four, five thousand years you think of the number of times their names have been read and perhaps considered it's important that when it comes in a sense, to that roll call, when the names are written, read out at that great day, that our names will be there, we will add to God's glory, and we will also receive that well done, good and faithful service, as I'm sure all of these men have done so far. Well, may God bless his word to us this evening.